Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. With a little bit of Christmas that we've uh, begun the Advent series, uh, just just in case it's seems a little out of sync to you. We know that we're out of sync with the church calendar uh, as we were doing a little bit of planning for Advent and thinking through what uh, we wanted to say as the, as the series and the season went on. We realized that Advent starting in December 3rd uh, was not acceptable and we would just buck the whole church calendar and start it a week early. So a little more Christmas uh, for us. And uh, just, just a real sense, I think, that the Lord has something he wants uh, to say to us as we navigate this. You know, we thought a lot about sermon series and the title for it. Um, and Emmanuel, God with us, is, is kind of pretty standard fare. It's, it's a fairly basic uh, title, and I'm sure there are dozens and dozens of churches that are, are focusing on this idea and this word. Uh, but for us, what it does is it really encapsulates uh, the fundamental meaning of Christmas in it. It is all about being humanity that Jesus has come to be with, being people that Jesus has come to be with, that reality of the incarnation, the theological importance of that is such that we would become people who would absolutely know and absolutely on every level learn to do life, not on our own, but to do life in the presence of a loving God who knows us and cares for us and, and wants to walk with us. So we're going to start uh, this week. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. And, and, and like pastorally, how is God with us in moments of decision? Uh, the week after, we're going to look at the story of the wise men. How does God guide us and lead us in our seeking? And how does he guide us to the places he wants us to go, not necessarily the places we want to go? Um, how does uh, the story of the shepherds, uh, it, it tells us something of God meeting us uh, in the mundane, God meeting common people in their everyday lives and wanting for you and wanting for me uh, something glorious of an encounter with him and with his presence. And then there's the story of Joseph and Mary's journey. Uh, how is God with us and leading us in his sovereign power when we really absolutely just are not in control? But this morning, what we're going to be talking about is, uh, how is God with us in the waiting? How is God with us in the moments of life where it seems like he's not with us? How is he with us when it seems like he's absent, when it seems like he's missing, in the midst of suffering? A question that is a fundamental question that every human uh, wrestles with uh, at a pretty deep level. Um, sometimes intellectually, sometimes maybe as a, as a non-believer who uh, might just ask the question, if God is good, why are so many bad things happening? Uh, but for those of us who know Jesus, when we experience suffering in a very heartfelt and very profound way, we wrestle with this question, where is God? And certainly in our culture, that is a question right now. Where is God in the conflict uh, between Israel and Hamas? Uh, where is God when tomato soup has doubled in price? 
Where's it when, where, where is he when we're, we're struggling financially? Where is he when our children are in the hospital and sick? Uh, we have kids and families that we love in this church that spend way too much time in Chio. Right? Where, where is God in that? Where is God in the Ukraine-Russia conflict? Where is God in the Canadian government and in the way our, our nation is going? Where is God when our hearts are broken? When our relationships are hurting? Uh, when we're wounded in our marriages or we're wounded in our friendships? Uh, where is God when those relationships are just completely gone, when we've lost a spouse, when somebody that we love uh, has, hit, has just become absent from us, when a child has walked away from their family and, and a mother is saying, where, where have you gone? Where is God in uh, Pakistan and Uganda and the Congo and India? Where is God in a world where it seems like everything is going wrong? Learning how to walk through uh, those moments where it seems like evil is all around and it seems like God is absent is absolutely critical to developing resilient faith. Uh, this, is, this is really, this is one of the key discipleship uh, issues that, that we need to lead our body through, that we need to teach into uh, for us as a people to be people who are resilient in our ability to follow Jesus. We have to have something inside of us that knows how to endure the times that are full of pain, the times that it seems like God is silent. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why am I hurting? Where is God? Why didn't he deliver me? Why didn't he fix it? Why didn't he protect me? Why didn't he make it all right? And why isn't he speaking to me in this moment? Uh, we as a charismatic church, we're a vineyard church, uh, we have a particular challenge with this because we actually believe in miracles. We believe that God will intervene in powerful ways. We believe sometimes he will heal the sick and that he will speak prophetically. But there are times when those things, when those spiritual gifts that we hold on to and that we chase after and that we desire, when it just seems simply like they're not working. And there are just so many stories out of churches like ours where people have come into their faith with tremendous expectation about who God is and what he will do and not have those expectations met and in the end walked away from faith. Walked away. We've seen in this congregation and every congregation has seen it. Dear friends that you love, that you know, that you have walked with, that you believe were strong in their faith and were solid in their faith. And when suffering has come, when pain has come, their theological framework and, and the way they were discipled hasn't given them what they need to walk through uh, those moments of silence, those moments of challenge. Uh, we think of, I'm, I'm going to make up a name, but we think of our friend Brian. Right? I, I, I mean, this could be anybody, a believer who grew up in a Christian home, 
uh, a ministry home with solid uh, parents, faithful parents. Uh, they ministered around the world. They pastored in churches. They planted churches, was embedded in healthy communities for most of his growing up, went to ministry school at a time of spiritual renewal, uh, was, was filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with zeal and serving God with passion and serving as a leader even among us. But all of a sudden, Brian's brother dies. Close to his age, 31, 32 years old, his closest friend and, 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 and dearest companion uh, dies unexpectedly. And Brian can't walk forward with God from that. And Brian walked away from faith and walked away from the church and, and lost uh, his desire and ability to connect with God. Because he didn't have a framework for understanding where God is in suffering. Corey grew up in the faith as well. There's another name, name made up. It could be any person. Uh, in, the, in the context of a thriving, charismatic church, Corey's most formative years growing up through his teens uh, were full of mission trips and adventures and the Holy Spirit moving in power and amazing things, miracles seen, all of these beautiful moments of, of life with the Holy Spirit witnessed. But as that moment, that time of renewal that so many people walked through uh, in the early 2000s began to fade, church began to get boring, church began to get a little stale, and the things weren't happening at the rate and the pace and intensity that Brian was used to. And slowly but surely, Brian became critical of the church and, and, and worried about God and where is God in this and why isn't the church doing the things that it used to do? And ultimately came to a place of cynicism and a place of frustration and a place of criticism. His faith wasn't able to live in the ebbs and flows of the way God works from renewal movement to renewal movement. Uh, there, there is a struggle to live when you have experience with the power of God and expectation of the power of God. There is a struggle to live in the moments where it's not happening. We eagerly desire it, we seek it, we long for it to happen, but we cannot make it happen. And where is God? What is he doing? And so when you are suffering, when you've experienced a loss, when you've experienced pain, or you've experienced a moment in your life that is past the time when you had your spiritual high, when you first came to know Jesus, and things are just getting down to what seems like the normal groove, when you're suffering and it seems like God is acting, there, there are two powerful realities that we need to hold on to. One reality is this, the miracle is coming. It's just not yet here. And that miracle might be something uh, that God is going to do by the power of his Holy Spirit in a time frame that is six months out, in a time frame that is a year out. It may be something that God is going to do in an eschatological time frame. We are ultimately looking towards the return of Christ. We can all say, uh, without a doubt, because the trumpet will one day sound, the miracle is coming. The resurrection is coming. But what do you do in the intervening time? But we can hold on to that truth. The reality is, is that the miracle is coming. And, and the second reality, and this is uh, the other piece of it, is, is that we can say with confidence from what we know in the scriptures is that he is with us in our suffering. 
that he enters into our suffering with us. He enters into the struggle with us and walks with us through those moments. He is present. Even when we can't see him, even when we can't feel him, we can be confident that he is there. We're just going to walk through this together. And we just have to watch out for the temptation that when we don't connect with those answers, that the miracle is coming, we can be mad that it's not soon enough. And when his presence is offering to be with us through our suffering, we can be mad because he is not fixing it. And that's the moment for my friend Brian where he walked away. He walked away because God didn't do it the way he wanted. And so I just want to call us to a faithfulness that sees the power of God moving in our lives uh, in ways that are unseen, in ways that are according to his will and according to his purpose. And this is the story of the land of Israel. This is something that we all deal with individually. This is something that we all deal with in life. This is something we deal with moment to moment. But this is something that the nation of Israel dealt with uh, on a national scale over a period of hundreds of years. Uh, this text that we read that was our Advent reading this morning, Isaiah 9, 2-7, begins uh, with Isaiah 9, 1, of course. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And Isaiah is speaking into, prophetically, into a specific moment in Israel's history where everything was about to go terribly wrong. He's giving a hope, a moment of hope, in, in, in a time when everything is about to go backwards for the nation of Israel. They have uh, walked away from God. They have chased after idols. And God is about to come and visit the nation uh, with, with some difficulty and with some suffering that is going to eventually lead them uh, to a place of faith. And, and this map shows us just... I'm not sure why that is... All the colors are missing. That is super weird. Um, the, the, map, the, the nation of Israel is, is mapped out in such a way that it is at the bottom of something that we would call uh, the Fertile Triangle. And that's, that's just so washed out. That's super weird. You can't see the, the sea. I don't know what's going on with that graphic. Um, but you can, you, you can see that there's this uh, great nation of Assyria that is covered over uh, the whole northern part of the Middle East and dipping down into, into Israel, dipping over that uh, that nation, uh, ultimately everyone feared Assyria. Everyone feared this nation that was coming to take the land and take the people and destroy the people and, and wipe them out. And in 2 Kings 15, 29, we see that moment happen that Isaiah was warning them about. In 2 Kings 15, 29, and I'm sorry about the graphics there, not having the contrast. But in the days of Pekah, the king of Israel, Tiglath-Pilazer, uh, the king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, Abeth, Makkah, uh, Janoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee in the land of Naphtali, right? Which we read about in Isaiah uh, 9, chapter 1. And he carried the people captive into Assyria. 
So the nation had fallen, the nation had fallen away from God, and a time of suffering uh, was about to come on them. A time of struggle was about to come on them. And Isaiah is speaking into that moment. And you've got to imagine that as the, the people are, are being carried off to Assyria, and that was a serious practice, they would take over a land, they would take over a nation, uh, they would take its people and its leaders, and they would cart them off to another part of the empire and scatter them there, and then they would plant their own people in the nation of Israel so that uh, there was really uh, uh, just a destruction of the culture of those people in the land. And ultimately, uh, Israel became a, a non-nation. But you can just imagine the Israeli people as they're being carted off and they're experiencing the suffering, uh, the promises of Abraham just echoing in their ears, right? Imagine them just remembering the promises of Abraham in Genesis 17. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Just hear that beautiful promise given to Abraham and hear the people being carried away into slavery remembering, God, where are you? Where is your promise? Where is God? Uh, the promise reiterated, reiterated to Isaac, Genesis 26.4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Oh God, where are you? As Israel is taken off to captivity, in 722 BC, 708 BC, the nation is gone. It's utterly destroyed. The northern kingdom of Israel has been completely wiped out off the face of the earth, never to surface again as a nation. Uh, 608 BC, the Babylonian captivity takes the southern kingdom of Judah and takes its people and leaders and young men, people like Daniel, and takes them off and, and enslaves them uh, in Babylon. Babylon has risen at this point and destroyed uh, the, na the, uh, the nation or empire of Assyria. In 58 or sorry, in 586 BC, uh, to add insult to injury, Jerusalem is taken and the temple is destroyed. Oh God, where are you? Where is, I will make you exceedingly fruitful when our temple is destroyed. Uh, we see a moment, a glimmer of hope, return to Judah as Persia rises and, and, and they allow them to come back to the promised land, but not to be their own nation, not to be their own people, but to be a governed nation under the people um, of Persia. Under Ezra, the temple's rebuilt in 516. This is a positive moment. In 444 BC, Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. But in 430, Malachi comes and warns that the suffering isn't over and speaks to them. And this is the last voice of a prophet spoken in Israel for over 430 years. Does it feel like 430 years to any of you? since you've heard the word of the Lord spoken in your heart. We know what that's like to have moments where it seems like God is distant. 332 BC, Alexander the Great now conquers the land and kills hundreds and thousands of people. 
167, Antiochus reconsecrates the temple. So they've been allowed to rebuild the temple and it's been allowed to function. But Antiochus uh, comes in and he says, we can keep the temple. We're not going to burn it down. We're not going to destroy it. But we're going to reconsecrate it to other gods. And no Jewish practice is allowed in the city of Jerusalem. Oh God, where are you? Where are your prophets? Where are your voices? Where is the hope? Where is the help? In 64 BC, another empire rolls through the Roman Empire under Pompey. And from that moment to the time of Christ, the people in the Jewish nation are under the boot of Rome and the suffering deepens and deepens and deepens. And so if you think about your moments of suffering, your moments of struggle, your moments where it seems like God has been distant, the nation of Israel has known this as a people, has known this uh, throughout the centuries, and has known this at times since then. So what do you do in those moments? when it seems like God is distant. And looking at the story of Isaiah and reading in between the lines in the text, we can see that Isaiah has some things to say to his people to prepare them for that moment of silence, prepare them for that moment of difficulty. In Isaiah 7.14, it says this, Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We look at that from our perspective, looking backwards, uh, and, and know that it's talking about Jesus. But Isaiah is speaking something specific to his people in that time and in that place. And what he's saying to them is, hold on, I'm going to show you a sign so that you will know that God knows this is happening. That in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the struggle, he's speaking at this point to a king uh, who is a wicked king in the southern uh, nation. He's a wicked king who has sacrificed his own son on the idols. This king is a wicked king, but still the prophetic voice comes to him and says, you need to know that in the midst of what is about to happen in your life, God will still be there. God will be present. And this child will be assigned to you. And I will be with you, says the Lord. You just hear the mercy and grace of God uh, being present with his people who have utterly sinned against him. And then Isaiah begins to speak uh, to his disciples. And, and we don't really know what that looked like. Isaiah probably had a group of people that were journeying with him, prophets in training or people that he was teaching. And there's this little section uh, in Isaiah chapter 8 before we get to the glorious prophecy that's coming in Isaiah chapter 9 where, where Isaiah coaches his people on how to endure the years that are to come. And he says this, For the Lord spoke thus to me and his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Don't we wish we had that one in the pandemic? Don't we wish we found that one? <laughs> Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. 
Do not be in dread. In the moment of suffering in your life, in the moment of God's seeming silence in your life, we have a, an ability, we have a desire uh, to look for answers, to look for explanations, to try to understand what is happening in the moment uh, so that we can somehow orient ourselves, so that we can somehow feel like we are above the chaos uh, that we're entered into. And there's this temptation in us to look towards uh, our human understanding of what's going on in the moments of God's silence. What's going on in the moment of pain? What's going on in the moment of chaos? And, and there is conspiracy. The, the enemy is at work. Uh, bad things are happening. People plot. That was happening in Isaiah's time. In 740 AD, Assyria is expanding westward. Uh, Israel and the northern kingdom and Syria and the other nations, Moab, Ammon, all these other nations around say, let's create an alliance. Let's, let's create an alliance against Assyria and try to protect ourselves from this empire that is coming down to, to wipe us out. And they say, Judah, won't you come and join our, join our, our alliance? And Judah says, no, uh, you're too wicked. Which, and Judah was incredibly wicked. But they were, like, you guys are even more wicked. We will not join your alliance. And so these nations, Assyria, Syria, not Assyria, Syria and Israel actually came south and attacked Judah and attacked the city of Jerusalem. So essentially they're, they're, they're brothers in arms against the great weapon uh, Assyria that was coming down on them all. They're fighting amongst each other. They're in chaos. They're, they're trying to destroy each other. So, so conspiracy happens. Crazy things are happening. The government is making bad decisions. All kinds of things are going on all around us. But Isaiah says to us, do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Him, let him be your fear, let him be your dread. It doesn't matter what conspiracies there are. It doesn't matter what forces are at play in the world. It doesn't matter what governments are plotting. It doesn't matter uh, what the enemy is doing behind the scenes in your life. That stuff does not matter, or it matters on a minuscule level compared to the reality that God is still Lord. God is still King. He is sovereign, and He is on His throne, and nothing passes that He does not see and does not know. And He is the one we ought to fear. He is the one we reverence. He is the one we worship in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the pain. We take our eyes off the conspiracies and the many things that are working behind us, and we say, I place myself in the hand of God. I place myself in the hand of God and not the hand of men. He is my Lord. He is my God. So God is with us as we worship him and acknowledge his sovereignty. He is with us in the pain. He is with us in the silence because he is sovereign over all. And this is not something that is easy. You don't just go to someone who has lost a child or someone who is suffering, who has lost a loved one, and you say, oh, God is sovereign, it's all good. But this is not how we counsel it takes an effort, it takes 
work. It takes discipleship. It takes a journey for us to take our eyes off of our pain and to turn our eyes to the heavens and look at him. This is not something that we do lightly. We see this in the, the story of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they're in the boat. The waves are, are rocking. Uh, they are terrified that they're going to die. And Jesus stands up as they wake him and, and hears their fear and with a voice calms the storm and the lake grows silent. And then he rebukes them. Oh, you have little faith. Because they feared the wind and the waves more than they feared the one who made them. And so we have to look beyond our wind and look beyond our waves and place our eyes time and time again on the one who blows the wind and makes it go. We have to trust in him. And that is not easy. But that is the task of the disciple. Isaiah goes on in chapter 8, uh, verses 16. He says this, Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Again, he knows that this, uh, this incredible uh, disaster is coming. And he says, bind up the testimony. It's not fight the enemies. It's not uh, build a bunker. It's bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. That word bind up is a word we see in a number of places in the Old Testament, but most profoundly in Exodus 12, chapter 34. So the people took the dough before it was leavened. This is as the people of Israel were escaping from Egypt escaping in a hurry. So the people took their dough before it was leavened and their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. They took that bread, they took that provision, they took that, that, that sustenance that they needed to survive the journey ahead of them and they bound it up and they carried it with them. The word seal is to mark with a sense of importance. So that when that message is opened, when that word of God, that truth of who he is, is opened up in your life in the moment that you need it, you know that that word is true. You know that that root word is pure. You know where it's come from. You know it's something you can trust. We need God with us in a deposit of our discipleship journey with him. That's what Isaiah is saying to his people. Is like, 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 go deep in this moment. Uh, learn from me. Uh, take the teaching. Take the word of God. Bind it up in your hearts. Hold it in you because you are going to need it in the journey that's set before you. The, the whole purpose of discipleship, and I think we, we as a culture look for so much in terms of immediacy. Like, is this discipleship? Is this video? Is this study? Is this like meeting my need right now? Uh, I don't know. That one really doesn't really fit with, you know, what I'm at right now, what I'm feeling right now. I, I'm not going to go out on Tuesday night. I'm not going to go out on Wednesday night. I just, you know, I've got, a, things are going pretty well. Things are, things are good. 
Well, your discipleship, the, the, the hiding of the word of God in your heart, isn't for the moments of prosperity, isn't for the moments of blessing, isn't just for the moments when things are good. You're hiding this stuff in your heart for the moments when things are bad, for the moments of suffering, for the moments of silence. Your discipleship journey is a preparation. And so if you're looking at your journey with God and saying, yeah, things are pretty good. I don't need to engage at, at any kind of deep level now. You need to fill your heart with the word of God so that you're ready for the moments when things are not so good. When things are not so easy. You need to walk with him. You need to build him into your heart. You need to carry him with you for the road ahead. And in Isaiah 8, 19 to 20, it says, When they say to you, inquire of mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. What's he saying here? To listen, in moments of suffering, in moments of challenge, in moments when things go wrong, there will be well-meaning people uh, compassionate people, kind people who will point you to sources of information and sources of comfort that are not true, that are not right, that are not good for you. Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers. What, he, what he's saying is, is don't inquire of the voices that are connected with necessarily culture or all kinds of strange spiritual powers, you're often going to be given an opportunity to go and click a link and find an easy fix and find an easy comfort and buy a product that will make you feel good. A thing that is magically going to make your life just a little bit better so that you can endure the suffering that you're in. Uh, necromancers who chirp and mutter, who tweet and Instagram. Right? That, that just sounds like, that's just... That's just too close to the world we're living in. Little voices to just tweet at you something positive to make you feel better. An Instagram ad for a change your life uh, by this workout program. Whatever it is. I mean, I could use a little life changing through a workout program. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, he, he wants something more for you. When you look at this, these words, this, this word inquire is used twice in the English. And it's so interesting. It says, when they say to you, inquire of mediums and necromancers, that word inquire is a Hebrew word, darash, which means to resort to. Just fall back on that and you'll be okay. God's not there. You can just go, you can resort to something else. Right? Inquire of these things. But then when he says, should not a people inquire of their God, it's a Hebrew word, yidros, which means to consult. Consult with your God. And that is a much more interactive process. That is a relational process. That is a dialogue. That is a conversation that God wants to have with you in the moment of suffering and that you're meant to have with his word. You're meant to dig into it and read it and ponder it and wrestle with it 
and struggle with it and question it and, and get the meat out of it, the word of God that's given to us. He is with us in his word. He is with us in his word. In the waiting, don't let the chaos of the non-Jesus voices overwhelm the power of the word of God. It's like we're walking through this bustling city and like going through the through, same imagine you're going into New York City and I, if I'm going to New York, there's all kinds of things I want to see. I want to see, well, again, back to the meeting uh, workout, I want to see like the top pizza joints in New York, right? We want to see Times Square. We want to see the flashing lights. We want to see all of the excitement of New York. Little things that just excite and encourage and interest us. I think God might be saying, in your New York, find the public library. Find the old stone building with the books on the shelves. Now walk up the steps and find a quiet table and pour over some words that you need to hear and you need to read and you need to know. There is a calling to the word of God in moments of silence, in moments of the waiting. Because you will find him there. You will find him in his word. And then the hope comes. Isaiah has prepared his people for what is ultimately going to be 750 years before the time of Christ. He's preparing us to endure that suffering. And then we've read this text already. But let me tell you, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the latter time, he has made glorious. And you can see Isaiah's confidence. It's almost like Isaiah has stepped into a time machine, like back to the future, and gone forward 800 years and seen the birth of Christ, and Christ's burial, and his death, and his resurrection. And he looks, and he's looking back, he says, this is something that God has done. He has a, such a confidence in God's uh, deliverance that he's using the past tense, and it's just remarkable, Isaiah's use of tenses here. He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, uh, Galilee of the nations, that land that was wiped out by Assyria, where all of its people were taken away and scattered in the north. He says that land that was wiped out will be made glorious, and we know it was made glorious by the coming of the Son of God by the coming of his light and the coming of his life into that place. And using the past tense again, he's seeing from the future. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. In times of waiting, uh, we, we, we are in the, what he saw. We are past that moment. We have seen Jesus. We know Jesus. We have his story. We have the Gospels. We know about the cross. We know a resurrected Lord. And so as we go into our suffering, we are not looking uh, with, with the, the distant hope that Isaiah had. We are looking with hope at something that has happened in space and in time and history. The witness of Jesus is so much richer to us than it was to Isaiah. We are so blessed because we have the story of this God who was with us, this child who was born into a manger. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
the same child that Isaiah hinted at in Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, as the angel said in Matthew 1, God with us. We have him with us. And so we're back to those two theological realities that we started with at the beginning. One, the miracle is coming. The miracle is coming. If you are in suffering, if you are in grief, you can know that the miracle is coming. However it seems to you that he may be governing now, and you may be, at times, me sitting in an arrogant place saying, God, you're doing a very poor job of this. Anybody ever done that, right? God, you're not doing it right. Right? Just sitting in this place, what I promise you is, however it seems that he may be governing now, he will govern more. He will govern more completely. There is eschatological hope. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, uh, on, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day is coming when his lordship will be clear, absolutely crystal clear to every soul on the planet. It will be known that he is Lord and he is sovereign and he is good. First Thessalonians 4 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So not only will he be seen, but he will be here in his fullness, in his glory. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise. That moment is coming, that moment of the fullness of his kingdom, the fullness of his glory, the fullness of his government, the fullness of his peace, the fullness of his goodness is coming upon the earth, and we can take hope in the reality of that. We look to that moment with hope. And in the in-between time, Isaiah has something else for us. In 53, 4 to 5, surely he has borne our griefs. And he has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. He went to the cross. He was born into a stinking barn to show you that he is with you. To be with you. When your loved ones are sick, when someone you love has passed away, when it seems like his voice is silent, he is with you. And by his wounds, you're healed. And even if you're running from him, even if you're running from him, Psalm 137, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. 
If I make my bed in the depths, there you are with me. We see it in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, through the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And that is just not accidentally placed at that place in the 23rd Psalm. There are 57 words in that Psalm. The first 28 words are the first part of the journey. The middle word that we see translated for thou art with me is one Hebrew word, ataimadi. And there are 28 words after that. In the very heart of the most comforting psalm, the prayer that everyone knows that you've all heard at funerals, that you've all heard that our culture even can whisper in their minds, the very heart, the very center of that truth, the very center of that reality is a word to you that God is with you, that he is with you. And so we are prepared for suffering. We are prepared for the silence. We are prepared for the struggle. Because he is coming. The miracle is ahead. And until it's there, he is with us. The worship team can come forward. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovcchurch.ca.